Well, summer's at an end, and with that brings, I hate to tell you, some of you, the beginning of the school year. Yeah. And um, that comes, that news comes at, uh, it's a message of great distress, of course, to no few school children. And it is a message that comes with, to great delight of many parents. Because it brings to an end the hue and the cry of the complaint, I've got nothing to do. It brings to an end, oh blessedly, the bane of boredom. Oh, boredom. Boredom, though, goes beyond just our, oh, a summer blue kind of thing. Boredom, boredom is really what's behind our, our ennui, as the French philosophers would say, our angst, our, our, uh, our apathy, our indifference, sense of meaninglessness that plagues so many of us. Boredom is really what lies behind that. As Richard Winter wrote some, I think it was like 12 years ago, wonderful book, um, Still Bored in a Culture of Entertainment. Dr. Winter wrote, Though we have hundreds of entertainment options today, video games, the internet, CD and MP3 players, home entertainment centers, sporting events, mega malls, movie theaters, and even robotic toys, Western culture is battling an insidious disease it's an epidemic of boredom. We can be bored with summer. We can be bored with life. We can even be bored with God. Insane, actually, as that is, it is possible to be bored with God. And it betrays a lot of what's going on in our hearts, if that's actually where we are. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13. I said that that's insane uh, to be bored with God. May God in His grace give us a fresh draught of sanity this morning. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verses 53, verse 53, and reading on to verse 58. So finishing out the uh, 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, uh, we are pressing on slowly but surely through this series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, if you're still looking for it, is the first of the books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is, again, Matthew 13, uh, picking up in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And not, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we need your perfect law for our souls need reviving. We need your sure testimony for we are simple and need wisdom. We need your right precepts for our hearts need to learn how to rejoice your pure commandments that our eyes might be enlightened. 
We need all this, and such can only come from Your Word that uh, You Yourself describe as being light a lamp unto our feet, left into our own devices. We would be stumbling off into the dark, off the path, over the cliff. We need Your help, and we thank You for Your willingness to say strong things Kind things when kind things are necessary. Soft things when soft things are necessary. But hard things when hard things are necessary. And so we ask that you would help us to hear. You know where every heart is here in this room. You know what is needed to move us to where you intend us to be. And so we are asking that you would do that work even now, even in this time. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, Luke Banner uh, has completed his um, licensure and ordination exams, an arduous process to say the least. Part of that process uh, has included his theology exams. And that was required of him to to grapple with uh, certain concepts, certain ideas that are, are daunting and vast and complex, uh, some of which are, are you have to hold in tension. You can't hyper-emphasize one side over against the other, lest you end up in some sort of imbalance, which frankly then oftentimes takes you into heresy. Case in point, one of the most uh, well-known when it comes to this discussion of the need to hold certain theological concepts from the Bible in intention, equally so, would be divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We dare not hyper-emphasize one side over against the other to the detriment of the other because the Bible does not give us a license and permission to do so. That's just one. There are several others. For instance, the nature of God. One God, three persons. That's the Trinity. Uh, the person of Christ. Fully God, fully man. The doctrine of Scripture, inspiration of Scripture, what we have here. A divine author, human writers. Not one or the other, but both. And all these things, all these things we have to hold in the tension that Scripture demands that we do, lest we become imbalanced and lest we get ourselves into some profound trouble. There's one more. One more comes out in this text. And that is God's transcendence and his eminence, that is, with an eye. That is to say, he is, he is above us, so far above us. As the Shorter Catechism in, de- in describing who God is, he is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is other. He is transcendent. And yet at the same time, he's with us. You see, there's some tension there. It's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. And it comes out here in this text and the need to understand how these things are coming. It's the very thing that you see in the Old Testament. In in the course of Israel's earliest days as a nation, with the tabernacle, there in the midst of the camp, God dwelling with his people, and yet they needed to keep it clear. This This was a tent in the midst of the camp unlike any other. But there it is, his transcendence and his eminence. The Emmanuel promise, God with us. All 
this, the complexities of what that means. And it comes out in Matthew 13 here towards the end with Jesus' homecoming. His homecoming and rejection in the town of Nazareth. It comes out very powerfully here. Again, the tension of God's transcendence and eminence needing both sides to be held equally so as we get ourselves into trouble. Because what we see here is that through Christ, God has come near. Through Christ, God has drawn near. But we must be wary of what I'll call familiarity with Him. I'll unpack that as we go. But just mark this down. Through Christ, God has drawn near to us. But with that, we must be wary of familiarity with Him. Three things, three points I want to look at that comes up progressively here as we move through this, this passage. First, the problem of familiarity. Secondly, the danger. Not just a problem, but the danger of familiarity. And thirdly, the cure. Thirdly, the cure. So, moving through it, problem, danger, cure. We see all three here in this passage. Let's look at these in turn. So first, the problem of familiarity. We have a, something of a case study of this right here in Matthew 13 at the very end. I'm going to read, starting in verse 53 again, and just a few verses of this text just to recapture, remind you of where we are, what's taking place here, the dynamics in play. And when Jesus had finished these parables, going back, talking about the, you know, hearkening back to the, all of what we've been looking at the last few weeks in Matthew 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, that's Capernaum, that area, and coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So Jesus has left Capernaum, his base of operations. Uh, Capernaum sat, sits, the ruins of it, sit on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum in its day was something of a, of a commerce center, of, of a lot of trade going on there. It was a border town, so therein it had a customs station, and with that a Roman military installation. Uh, so it's a, it's a busy happening place, and that's Jesus' uh, base of operations up there in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Now he is now moving to Nazareth. Nazareth, it's, it's, I won't say it's a hick town. I won't say it's completely backwater and you never go there unless you're trying to go there. And some people will tell you that, and that's not true. It's remote, but Nazareth sat very near a major trade route. And within an hour's walk of a, the major, a major city, Sepphoris. So it, I will call it a frontier town. A frontier town. A little out of the way, but it's no Capernaum. Understand? Jesus is leaving Capernaum, returning to Nazareth. I say returning to Nazareth because this is his hometown. This is where he grew up. The synagogue that's mentioned here is likely where Jesus, as a young boy, learned to read. Okay? So you might then be thinking in terms of the expectation... Maybe his followers, knowing that, you know, this is where he's from, this is where he hearkens back to as far as where he grew up, and the reader, knowing that as well, we might be expecting then a warm welcome, right? A hometown welcome. The, the kid that made it big, right? Not so much. 
This is hometown hostility, is what you see here. Now, granted, here's the weird dynamic in play here. On the one hand, you could say, when you go home, whatever home is, when you go home, it's oftentimes the place that you receive the best, ideally. But not if you've made it in the world. Not if you've become something. Oftentimes, in that case, you go home, there's a bit of peak. There's, there's a bit of offense. There's a bit of awkwardness. There's a bit of, uh, well, where do you get off putting on such airs? You see that here in the text. How is Jesus received? They are astonished at his words, his works. Reading between the lines, you're certainly hearing a lot of criticism and, and, and offense. Who do you think you are? Coming in with your followers. You've got no special breeding. You had no special training. You see, they think they know him. They think they know who this is. And that, my friends, is the problem of familiarity. They think they know. They think they know. Let me take you back to what we read earlier from Revelation 3. It's worth noting the problem of familiarity when you consider uh, the first part that was read from chapter 1, who it is that's speaking. That's kind of a big deal when you recognize the imagery there, how Jesus, re- uh, the, the ascended, resurrected Christ, is revealing himself there to John in that vision on the Isle of Patmos decades after uh, he had ascended. And then you keep reading, and there's a series of, of revelations to these announcements, pronouncements to these churches. And the last one is to this church in Laodicea, which was a real place, a real church, a real gathering, a real body of people. No doubt if we knew where to look, we would find their graves, we would find their bones. And Jesus describes this body of believers as being lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Now, the, the background to that is the Lysus River, which was the river nearby that went right on by this, this town of Laodicea, was, was too muddy and it was absolutely undrinkable. And so the drinking water then came from an aqueduct, which was impressive. But that flowed from a hot spring five miles away. How hot do you think that water is if it's traveled an aqueduct for five miles? It's tepid. It's room temperature. It's lukewarm. That's what Jesus is grabbing hold of here. Everybody in Laodicea knows exactly what he's referring to. Lukewarmness, tepidness. And the question then begs to be asked, what of us? Could that be said of us? A tepid, lukewarm faith familiar with God. Presuming upon God. And if it's possible, which surely it is, what might be the signs of I'm going to give you three. Three signs of the spiritual sickness. One is flippancy. And I'll give three parts to the first sign. Flippancy. Flippancy with God. Just a casual way of thinking about the man upstairs. Our cosmic butler. Flippancy about others. Don't worry about them. That's just old so-and-so. They're not really worth much trouble. Flippancy about our sin is just a mistake. It's just an oversight. Flippancy, that's one. Apathy would be another. 
that when the gospel message is proclaimed, your heart beat is just flat. There's just no anything, no upward tick whatsoever in the contemplation of the possibility that you could be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That, gets, that does nothing for you. Apathy, and apathy not just towards the gospel, but apathy towards the means that God has given to press that message down into our hearts. Cases in point, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, you don't care. And they don't have anything to do with your life. Flippancy, apathy, callousness. A deadness and an indifference to the spiritual state of the people around you. That, those are signs of a familiarity with God, a presuming, a lukewarmness, a tepidness that Jesus warns us about and that we see playing out in the town of Nazareth, his very hometown, where he grew up, where his roots were. That's the problem. Yes, through Christ, God has drawn near, but we must be wary of such familiarity. That's the first thing. The second, though, flows right on out of that, and is the danger of it. The danger of it. The peril of it. Now, so we've seen something of how the reception Jesus encountered there uh, that day as he uh, comes into Nazareth, or maybe it's a initial after an initial period after he's arrived in Nazareth. How does Jesus respond to their response? That's worth noting. How does Jesus respond to their response to him? Well, you see that in verse 57. They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the, the danger of familiarity. We need to, to reckon with what he says and then what he doesn't do. So the warning that he gives, gives and then this refusal to act in a certain way. So the warning is some, certainly something implicit here in how Jesus aligns himself with the long line of Old Testament prophets that have gone before him who have spoken on behalf of God, relaying to his people his purposes for them, and yet were rejected and spurned by them. Jesus, in, in, in hearkening to this proverb here is clearly aligning himself with that long line of, of, of situations. And then, that's implicit, now explicitly, he's calling them out. He's calling them out for doing the very th that very thing that they've been doing historically for years and years and years, for generations, he's calling them out for taking that same response to him, or if I could put it this way, as that our own proverb adage in our day goes, Clearly, in their case, familiarity with him had bred contempt. Familiarity had bred contempt. So that's the warning that he throws down. And then there's this refusal. Uh, he refuses uh, to perform, as it says there in verse uh, 58, to do many mighty works there. The impl implication is a few, but it's certainly drawn back. He's holding back. And, and, but let's be clear, it's not an inability. It's not that he's unable 
to do something like it's something about them and of themselves that's constraining Almighty God to do something. It's not an, un, an inability to act. It's an unwillingness to perform. Because Jesus did not come to entertain or amaze the crowds with His great deeds and acts. So as a consequence of all this, in essence, they're saying, we don't want you. We don't care about what you say. And if, in fact, these miracles, and they were, were about bolstering and illuminating what it was that he did say, so we really don't want the miracles either, then he's not giving them much of either. You understand? He's not giving them what they don't want. He, so he's holding back. He's letting them have what they want. He's letting them go their own way, which is a terrifying thing for God to do. Letting us have what we want. Letting us go our own way. Letting us taste something of the consequences of our decisions. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. This is the danger of familiarity with him. That he would give us what we want. Not him. Hold back. He withdraws Himself. And again, I take you back to this, this uh, passage from Revelation 3. This powerful illustration of all this, what's going on here in, the, in, the, in the, this familiarity that these people, these professing Christians had with the living Lord Jesus. I mean, what, what does he say? You can look here just right here, this page, top of it, okay? In your bulletin. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, if they were if, if they were if it was cold water, that would be refreshing. If it was hot water, then for a weary traveler, that would be soothing. But they were neither. They were lukewarm. They were tepid. And so he spits it out. He responds to that kind of faith, that kind of approach to him, that kind of presumption and familiarity with distaste and revulsion. And the root of that, their response to him, you read just a little further, he says, he tells us, for you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. No commitment, no commitment to Christ because there is no conviction of sin. Self-sufficient, and self-righteous. I'm fine. And I ask myself, and I ask all of us, because we need to be asked, could that be said of us? That sort of approach, that sort of stance before the living God. Do we know in the depths of our being that we are beggars? Beggars with absolutely nothing to buy, purchase, acquire God's forgiveness. Do we understand that we are naked with nothing of our own working to clothe ourselves before the living God? Do we understand or are we so blind 
to our poverty and spiritual destitution before the living God. Through Christ, God has drawn near. But oh, we need to be wary of this presumption, this familiarity with Him. That takes us to the last thing. Oh, that it would, it would be a crime if we stopped here. It really would be. Um, it would be uh, pastoral malpractice if this was a two-point sermon. And praise God it doesn't have to be. Because there is indeed a cure for our familiarity, our cursed familiarity. And that is simply this. To look to the cross. The cure for this spiritual sickness that afflicts more of us than we realize and afflicts all of us more than we realize. This cure for this is to look to the cross. In actuality, this rejection that Jesus is tasting of here in Nazareth is driving in that direction. He's already tasted something of the people's rejection in the course of his earthly ministry just in reading Matthew 1 through 13 already. But this is a foretaste, what he's experiencing in his hometown. The rejection that he experiences there in Nazareth is but a foretaste of the ultimate rejection that's coming in Jerusalem. The cure for our familiarity with God, this cursed lukewarmness and tepidness to our faith, is to look to the cross. Because there at the cross, we see our sin for the heinousness of what it is and what justice demands in some way. Now, on the surface level, looking at the cross, it it looks like just another state execution. You know, the scourging, the literal stripping of all human dignity, the, the crass insults borne by the one thrown up there upon those wooden beams in a torturous, horrifically torturous way to, to, to die agonizing over the course of hours, sometimes even days, all meant to be a public display for enemies of the state so that all who would see this this mockery, this horror, it would stand as an example to everyone. Whatever he did, don't do that. At one level, that's what this looks like. As though that's, and it was that, but it was not all of that. It was, you have to go far deeper to understand there's divine judgment here. It's not just a state execution. There's divine judgment in play at the cross. This, in this, you see the Father turning his back from the Son. This is why, in the middle of the day, the sun went dark. And by the way, that was no eclipse. The star charts don't allow. Dialing it back, do not allow for that conclusion. And it also went for about three hours. This is why creation itself is responding to this divine judgment that's taking place. This is why Jesus anticipating what He is going to have to go through is pleading with the Father the night before, is there another way? Can there be another way? And then it's why while He's hanging on that cross, He's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he has. You see, there at the cross, 
as we look to the cross, that our spiritual, this cursed familiarity would be cured and driven out of us. We see our sin, but there we see our Savior. Because everything that he's going through, hanging there, was for us. On our behalf, in our place. Now I want you to think with me here. How else could it be that the sinless one is dying for sin at the hands of the perfect judge? Does that equate? The sinless one is dying for sin at the hands of the perfect judge. The only reason that is happening, the only way that can happen, is because he's dying for sins that are not his own. He is dying in your stead. He is dying in your place. My friends, this is like, the, I was mentioning the tabernacle of old, this is like the scapegoat of old. Lifting the curse, the shame, the guilt up off of us and carrying it out into the wilderness. That's what that all involved many moons ago in Israel's history. The scapegoat. Jesus, our scapegoat, in our place, out of love. Out of love. You thought it was the nails that held him to that cross. Nails didn't have anything to do with it. It was his love that secures him there for you and for me. It has nothing to do with the nails and everything to do with his love. This is the cure for our familiarity. This is the cure for a tepid, lukewarm faith. It's the very thing Jesus holds out. Now look, I've been quoting back, going back and forth between Matthew 13 and Revelation 3. I want to go back to Revelation 3 one more time because Jesus, he describes them, he warns them, and then he invites them. Right? Pick up where we left off here in uh, verse 17. I counsel you. To buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you hear what he's saying? He is putting the invitation out here to paupers. To paupers. To sit down. Be made sons and daughters of the royal court. To know who you are. He is speaking here to homeless transients and saying, you have a place not in the corner at the great table. At the great table. This is the invitation that's being held. Now, again, I, I said, okay, could this be us? Are these the signs? Are we willing to hear the warning? Will we hear the invitation? Will we hear this invitation? His rejection meets ours. Answers ours is the cure for ours. His rejection meets ours.
familiarity with God is undone as we feed upon this. Familiarity is undone as we feed upon this. Um, our, the sense in which we are bored with the gospel, bored with life, bored with God, bored with ourselves, bored, indifferent, and apathetic, all of that is undone. Undone as we bore into these things. Therein, oh my goodness, as Martin Luther said, it, it heightens the need so much for us to be daily preaching the gospel to ourselves and laying hold of whatever means by which we need to do that. And we would hear this again and daily. So this is the cure for our familiarity, to look to the cross. Because there we see our sin and there we see our Savior. Now let me end by just pointing this out and stressing, coming kind of back to something I was saying earlier. Don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. By calling, by uh, sounding the alarm about being, becoming familiar with God, we thought, ought not to then swing to the other side and lose our wonder that He is drawn near. You see how that could happen, right? That's not what is being called for here. Somehow we have to hold to both at the same time. I'll read you uh, this uh, reflection here from Phil Yancey in your quotes and notes. It's the third one down. It's from his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. I, I think it captures something. And then something I want to say after that, capture something of what the dynamics are like here. I learned about incarnation when I kept a saltwater aquarium. Management of a marine aquarium, I discovered, is no easy task. I had to run a portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. I pumped in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfa drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I filtered the water through glass fibers and charcoal and exposed it to ultraviolet light. You would think... And if you have all the energy expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful. Not so. Every time my shadow loomed above the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only, fear. Although I opened the lid and dropped in food on a regular basis three times a day, they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. I could not convince them of my true concern. To my fish, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions, too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy, they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing, they viewed as destruction. To change their perceptions, I began to see would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish and speak to them in a language they could understand. So, now he didn't, couldn't, of course, do that. But what would it be like if he could? I mean, what's a fish to do when the aquarium keeper gets down in the water? You know, that's not far off from what we're talking about here. That, that, that therein would mean no grounds for boredom and boasting or indifference or apathy or pride and presumption, but rather it would free and inflame all cause for wonder and worship Intimacy and engagement, awe and obedience. Because that's what God in Christ has done. At the one hand, 
become like us and at the same time still being utterly unlike us at the same time for us. For us. May we hold the balance. May we learn how to live in this tension. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, it is so hard for us to keep this balance. If we hear anything of this at all, we just tend to play down one side of the other to make it easy, easier for whatever our inclinations are. We're, we just don't hear. And what we do hear, we presume upon. We think we know You. In actuality, we are most likely all too familiar with You. We ask that You would help us to see the problem, to be attuned to the symptoms. Help us to be aware of this danger of a hardness, of a coldness, of a tepidness. Oh, would You help us to continually look to the cross that we would not think so much of ourselves and learn how to think oh so much more of You. Delighting in the God who is drawn near near to us and knowing in the mystery of Your love that You delight in us. We pray this in Your name. Amen.